Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features the Acropolis Reed Quintet. We hope you enjoy. everybody and welcome back to the sound weavers podcast as always i am your harping host dr rosanna moore and today my incredible and wonderful partner in crime is the lovely dr blair kerner how are you today my lovely very excited <laughs> very excited because we have a uh, reed quintet on and um normally you hear about quintets and you assume and normally, rightly, that it would be a wind quintet, so French horn, flute, clarinet, oboe, and bassoon. But not today. Not today. We have instead the Acropolis Quintet, which are a reed quintet with clarinet, bass clarinet, bassoon, saxophone, and oboe. They're one of very, very few groups that are exploring this exciting uh, new group and also have been competition winners in incredible competitions such as the Fish-Off and both their gold medal and the educator award. Now they have been working together for 12 years and have been hailed by Fanfare magazine for their quote, imaginative, infallible musicality and huge vitality. Uh, they met in the University of Michigan in 2009 and have been working together ever since. We are joined by two members of the group today, Matt Landry and Carrie Landry, who are the saxophonist or saxophonist, Sorry, I'm showing my Britishness very much. Uh, the saxophonist and executive director, and Carrie is the clarinetist and marketing development manager. So, hi guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, it is so great to be here. Likewise, wonderful to be here. Thanks for having us. Anytime. So, let's get down to the questions. Can you briefly describe the history and mission of Acropolis? Are you all the original members or have there been any changes through the years? Okay, there has been uh, one change in membership, which would be myself. However, um, I, I guess I'm still considered a founding member. Uh, the group formed in 2009 and I joined in 2010, uh, only about a year after when the uh, really the group's founder, a uh, great saxophonist, saxophonist named, <laughs> named Dan, uh, Dan Goff. Yes, uh, Dan was actually the founder. So shout out to Dan. And he got a wonderful job a year in uh, in one of the big, uh, you know, the really big military band jobs. And mm -hmm. as a saxophonist, that's, you know, that's that's a really mm -hmm. prized position. And Acropolis wasn't exactly, you know, uh, touring the world and making CDs and, and, and changing changing lives at that point, uh, very early on. So I came in a year in, you know, as far as a, a brief history, I mean, yeah, it started in 2009, um, began as a group that played arrangements for Reed Quintet 
um, of other music, orchestra music, piano music, things like that. And then very quickly, we morphed into creating our own canon of, of music, which has now become really a, a full canon of music. There are many, many, many hundreds and hundreds of original pieces of reed quintet music. And there are dozens of reed quintets in America. There are reed quintets in South America. There are numbers in Europe, um, in Australia. Very few of them are able to find a full-time living, you know, the way that Carrie and I do with Acropolis, but the canon continues to grow. And so after we started commissioning first, at first young composers, or I guess I should just say our, our peers, students um, at University of Michigan, we then, um, you know, got a little money together and started commissioning, quote unquote, you know, professional composers. And um, I, I separate the two out, but we still actually mostly work with student composers. Uh, we work with far more student composers than, than, <laughs> uh, than, than I guess, more, more seasoned composers. Um, anyway, and then that, that brings us on to, um, you know, eventually working heavily with um, in the educational realm, starting to collaborate a lot, touring a lot more. And um, yeah, and so 12 years later, here we are. You also asked about our mission and our mission is uh, as a nonprofit and also just as an ensemble is essentially to bring more accessibility and awareness to great classical and contemporary music, uh, especially among people that usually wouldn't, wouldn't see it, wouldn't know it. And we do that through just trying to perform the best we can, trying to create as many amazing new works of music as we can, and by emphasizing working with community members of all stripes and with youth as well. So speaking of um, repertoire, I was really curious because you have a whole collection of repertoire on your website for sale called the Acropolis Collection, which right now at least has like 96 pieces. So I am really curious about this. Do you publish these pieces yourself? How do you get the rights to the works that you're arranging? What about when you're working with composers? You know, do, do they get some of the, the cut or is it like once they get commissioned, that's part of what they get and then that's one and done. So like, how does that function and how did you decide to start selling all this work as well? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we actually, believe it or not, started the uh, collection of sheet music, the Acropolis collection, I think way back in 2012. So we were a really young ensemble and we just immensely believed in the music that we were creating and making. And we knew that it needed to be shared and that we wanted to get it out there. And one of the best ways that we thought to do that was to figure out you know, how to publish it ourselves. Um, as I am sure throughout the rest of this conversation, you'll see just how uh, enterprising, entrepreneurial, creative, wacky go-getters when it comes to coming up with ideas uh, for what success is for us. And in the beginning, publishing this music was one of the first stepping stones that actually transitioned us into becoming a business. And mm -hmm. So we started off with just a very, very small group of pieces, uh, composers that were at the University of Michigan that uh, we commissioned and also pieces that we had arranged ourselves. Um, and you mentioned, you know, how do we get the rights and the permission and what is the contracting and everything like with that? And essentially every person is a different experience, but you have to go to say like the Gershwin Institute and get permission and essentially pay for a license in order to sell and publish and share the music. And so we approached every 
uh, basically peace one-on-one -on -one with all of these different mm -hmm. organizations and pieces and people. And we've been successful with a lot of them. We haven't been successful with some of them. And when it comes to the new original music, oftentimes uh, composers who are alive today that we commission really enjoy being a part of this catalog because it's probably the number one place in the country that retets go in order to find music and repertoire. So having their music being included in that is a major bonus. And over the past decade, our are, you know, are following and everybody who turns to us for inspiration and advice has also grown. So they have a really good chance at having their music being played by these hundreds of reed quintets that Matt mentioned that are now all around the country. So every agreement is different and everybody has, you know, different things that they have that are really important to them when it mm -hmm. comes to publishing their music and, and sharing it. And we, uh, surprise, uh, surprise, we do everything in-house. We have a big boss printer that churns out <laughs> crazy music. Um, and we, you know, we buy the paper wholesale. We have um, a method for uh, basically putting it together for shipping it. And um, so that's a nifty little side arm of Acropolis that has been going since, you know, really the beginning and has only really grown. Talk about enterprising, yes. <laughs> One of the coolest things is when we go to uh, uh, a school of music or a conservatory somewhere and do some coaching and work with students. And then we go to the library and their 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 library has our music in it. Oh, and that's so cool. It's especially cool when they've rightfully created a reed quintet section of their library, right? Because it's like, otherwise they put it in um, something else, um, you know, miscellaneous or something like that. Which is totally fine. We're we're hundred percent grateful to anybody who will purchase the music and promote it. Um, but it is cool to see it becoming a category. It certainly will, uh, if it isn't already, be considered a, a legitimate category soon. So yeah. Blair, one day there will be a harp and bassoon section in every music library. There you go. <laughs> I think I think you've just inspired us, and also just gave me a slight like panic attack because I get the feeling that this is now where Rosie wants to go. Um, <laughs> kind of switching or at least taking that and, and morphing it. So you've talked about commissioning, you know, students and professional um, composers. You've done a lot of performances, a lot of collaborations. You know, on your website, you had mentioned Mech Animals, Unraveled, High Speed Reads, to name a few. I'm curious, and so each of you get to respond to this, which is your favorite project so far and why? That is a wonderful question. Um, my favorite project that I think we've done, uh, it's been a while since we did it. It was in 2018, but we've continued to try and tour it and basically morph it and adapt it over the next couple of years. But uh, my, my favorite project is where we essentially collaborated with a rideable percussion bicycle um, and we commissioned a composer to write a piece for us and this crazy contraption that we actually commissioned a metal fabricator in Detroit which is where we're based to make this and then we basically did this entire collaboration and this piece together and have started to tour it a little bit and have started to actually you know think about recording it and taking it on the road as well and so the piece is called Sprocket and it's by a composer named Stephen Snowden. He, so he's, you know, he's from, from the Ozarks and really appreciates that part of his heritage. And I got a book from my parents called Salt and Truth. And it's this person who um, did uh, some wonderful photography and followed a lot of the people that live in that part of the country. 
and he came over and saw it. He had known about these really this wonderful photo exhibit um, somewhere, and that maybe in the Boston area. And so he and I got to talk about about that a good bit and share a little bit on his his heritage, which uh, inspires a lot of his music. He has mm. just this this I don't really know how to describe it other than it sounds like. It sounds like the middle of the country. It sounds like this um, in in all of the ways that it ought to, you know. Yeah. And and that was we're really glad to be able to have that in our music. And then also sort of it worked with this um, metal with Juan Martinez, mm-hmm. the metal sculptor. It, it, a lot of what what he kind of stands for as well. Um, his industry as a as a as a um, a worker and a designer mm-hmm. of these things, and so it all came together and just um, yeah, it was great. Sorry, Carrie, I, <laughs> it was your favorite project, but I really liked it too. So. Yes, so working with Steve and Juan, not only uh, commissioning this piece, but building this bicycle and working together was just an absolutely unreal collaboration. The music that resulted from it was like nothing we had ever done before. The sounds alone were just completely new, genuine, exploratory, and so beautiful. And Steve created just this masterful, masterful new piece for the Reed Quintet that not only have we been able to play with this uh, wacky rideable percussion bicycle, but he also adapted it for, you know, touring percussion as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've done it with a few other amazing percussionists around the country and we're continuing to share this music as we go on tour and essentially what we have really loved over the past few years as we continue to grow is introducing more and more collaborators into Acropolis. I think that Mm -hmm. that's just become a major focus of ours is not only how can we continue to grow the Reed Quintet repertoire, but how can we bring in new sounds, new voices, new perspectives, and new new musicians into it as well. Um, I think that's a good segue into uh, what my answer was going to be as far as my favorite collaboration. I am originally from New Orleans, and I have a lot of um, love for jazz. I often say that if I had to take a record collection on a desert island, I'd take my jazz records instead of my classical or my contemporary music records, uh, which can cause a little bit of a stir. Um, But I was very excited when after 12 years we're um, working with some jazz artists now. And we collaborated with two jazz musicians, um, uh, Pascal LaBeouf and then Christian Human. Pascal is a pianist and composer. Christian is a drummer. Pascal um, lives in New Jersey and uh, Christian uh, based out of Los Angeles and is a touring drummer and uh, sort of a side man for a lot of really big artists. I guess the biggest that people would probably know is Jacob Collier. So if Jacob Collier is going on tour, Christian, Christian is off. I love that guy. His stuff is awesome. Oh, it's it's, it's phenomenal. Um, Yeah. So Pascal wrote a piece for him, us and Christian. And the, the piece of music is, is fabulous in so many ways. What he did is this brilliant combination of allowing Acropolis to express everything that we are in terms of our background, our training, our chemistry, Mm. all that stuff, while at the same time, Christian and Pascal get to express everything about what they are. And all of us at the same time get to, while sort of within our comfort zones, at the same time, stretch ourselves a little bit into the other zone. And then while doing this, the audience, who's kind of oblivious to like all this stuff that's going on, is 
hearing this um, synthesis of tr uh, classical and contemporary music and jazz. And the classical and contemporary side of things come from a lot of Pascal's influences um, from West Coast jazz, um, like, like Dave Brubeck and, and, and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And, and then um, other you know, big names, Jerry Allen and Charlie Mingus. And then also the sort of like Americana of classical music, like Copeland and Bernstein, you know, people like that. And then all this mixed together with um, some wonderful classical music and, and, and more progressive jazz and just whatever those two cats are just like making right now, right? So later in the, in the like sort of latter stages of the composition, which is um, like 25 minutes long, um, they really explode into some like full-blown improvisation. And then in other parts, they're sort of orchestrating with us. Um, and it's just a fabulous, fabulous project and just kind of a long time coming for us to really finally collaborate with, I guess the, you know, the art form, you know, classical and jazz are kind of seen as two expressions of like the same thing in like these very different ways, but working with them was so liberating while also so engaging and questioning like constantly all the time. Um, and it was great. And we're excited to hopefully as soon as, as soon as we can, get that thing up, get that thing on the road you know so <laughs> so aside from all of your performances acropolis seems to be incredibly heavily rooted in education initiatives from k-12 through the collegiate level for elementary level students i've seen that you have interactive programs such as the best story drawing with sound and the melody game I was wondering if you could tell us how you came up with these programs and who and what was involved in the process for this. Absolutely. So we we have always been an ensemble that has had education just deep, deep, deep in our core. Really, before we started touring and performing, we were going into schools in Southeast Michigan and, and playing for students. And that has been just at the root of everything that we do. And uh, Matt actually has a degree in music education and the rest of us have performance degrees as well. And so it was something that just naturally combined with us and basically blossomed from there. And so we've been doing um, educational work for the last decade and everything has come out of all of these previous activities and everything has grown, you know, from the ground up. When we won the Fishoff Educator Award, that this idea of the best story where we read a story and do this very, very interactive theatrical show with our instruments, it germinated out of that process and, and basically having that time to really come up with something incredibly engaging at the elementary level. And um, over the past three years, we've actually been in residence at three high schools in Detroit. Um, where That's amazing. Yeah, where many of them, um, their music programs have been drastically cut or reduced. And uh, where our residency has evolved is we work with students at all of the schools and essentially teach them music composition. And then we actually, they write a piece for Acropolis throughout the year residency, and then we premiere it and perform it um, at our festival that we do at Detroit. Um, every year. And this year we've had to do everything virtually, but we're meeting with all the students and all the schools on, on Zoom and Microsoft Teams, and we're working with them to write their pieces. And uh, over this past summer, we premiered the works from last year online. And it's been um, just a, a life-changing, amazing 
project for us, not only for the students, but for us as well to just go start through finish for this creative process. So we, um, we essentially mirror all of our educational work with our professional work, everything that we value and everything that we believe we want to do with students as well as our peers and as well as people that we look up to. Um, there's a really common thread between all of the educational work that we do. And essentially our, our motto is that you really don't wanna try and force a fit with anything that you do. Mm -hmm. And that's really how all of our educational programming has developed and grown and become so important to us is because it's mirrored in almost everything else that we do. Yeah, I think we we started with the idea of doing a residency at these um, three different high schools in Detroit, kind of thinking that it would be a multifaceted um, sort of performance-based. We, we have done some things where we collaborated with the students. We performed with them. We did a concerto for us and band that was at like an educational level and stuff. Oh, great. And yeah, yeah. And and basically, I mean, the original thought behind the whole idea was a lot of ensembles are resident at conservatories. And that's great. Um, but I don't, we never understood why ensembles wouldn't be residents at high schools or at elementary schools or, or anywhere, um, frankly, at a hospital or a resident. The idea just simply being that it's it's not a matter of being a resident at, a, at an educational institution. It's just a matter of being in, in residence. And rather than having surface level interactions, forming year over year connections and deeper connections within a particular, say, week or month or year. And we get to do both. So we see the students, all of them 15 to 20 times each a year. So you get mm -hmm. that growth. We now have students who are they see us perform at the elementary schools, for instance, because we do some one-offs at the younger schools, and then they want to be a part of the program when they get to these high schools. Yeah. Um, they matriculate through the program, so to speak. And really, for us, our ability to control all of this, to say, we want to do it here for these reasons, and we want to make the impact locally where we are, that allows us to have creative control and to really form um, meaningful relationships with the students and the teachers and um, also, as a matter of as a matter of practicality, you know, as a reed quintet, there aren't institutions jumping up and down <laughs> to say we need two clarinet faculty, an oboe, a bassoon, and a saxophone faculty. We need chamber faculty. We need music business faculty or entrepreneurship or career development or whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, we have you know half a million dollars and just for y'all and we'd love for you to come be a resident here and all this kind of stuff i mean that hasn't happened yet and we don't and, and we don't we don't see it happening anytime soon yeah. if it does happen great but that's not the kind of thing that you plan for and the way carrie may have mentioned this earlier but the way that we think is i mean we we we, we create our own opportunities every single thing that we do germinates from our own ideas and um creativity and so this is as much a project for us and youth as it is a creative project like we just talked about Pascal LeBeau from Christian Newman and all this amazing stuff. I mean, it's the same, it's the same thing with these students. And it's, it's really lovely to be able to do that kind of stuff on our own, raise the money for it, um, all that and put it all together. Yeah. And the idea of just living and breathing the philosophy of creating your own opportunities is something that we 
love to teach and impart on other music students. And especially when it comes to the collegiate level, we do dozens and dozens of music business and entrepreneurship workshops um, for students all around the country. And it's, it's amazing to be able to share everything that we've learned on this decade journey to where now we have this, this full-time business and an organization that supports us and that is capable of giving so much back to us and the community. And um, it was actually this past year during the pandemic when we launched our first ever basically online uh, music business entrepreneurship workshop extraordinaire um, called Acropolis Mastermind. And we had 10 fantastic ensembles and artists come and participate along with five industry leading mentors. And we basically just went through the entire gambit of, of everything that goes into making your own, uh, not just music career, but your own business. And not, when it comes to the administration, the marketing, the finances, the fundraising, the community engagement, and it was, it was revolutionary for us to be able to have that kind of depth with, with all of these students, like, like Matt mentioned, you know, doing the one-off educational experiences is really fun. But what we found, especially with our residency in Detroit, is creating something that's really lasting, really, really deep, and very personalized and very impactful is what really makes change and what really fuels people and can have the most impact on, on their careers. And after doing the mastermind this past summer, we just saw so much success in all of these artists and ensembles, and we absolutely cannot wait to do it again um, this summer. It's it, it was one of the, the coolest things that I think we've uh, started during the pandemic for sure. I, I'll clarify real quick also, another one of the cool things about the mastermind was it was our intention to do an online week-long entrepreneurship boot camp uh, uh, like two years ago. Um, and the idea basically being that like uh, especially conservatory and college music students spend, you know, way too much money on festivals and traveling and all these opportunities. And there's like a serious issue, you know, with access as far as, as far as funding and finance-based opportunities are concerned. And so by having it online, um, we would eliminate almost all that, but the catch being it needed to be competitive in terms of the quality and, the, and all that kind of stuff. And so we needed to do everything that we could to say, okay, this is actually gonna be a new thing. It's gonna be all online, but here's the benefits of that. And here's why that's actually the best way for this thing to occur. And then everything is tailored to that particular environment. And then lo and behold, um, you know, what happened happened with um, COVID and, you know, we ended up, it ended up sort of fitting into this, into this box of a whole bunch of online stuff. But it is also, I mean, in speaking to a little bit of the, you know, the idea of, of having a, a, an entrepreneurial career, a, a business driven, you know, um, organization or concept of what you want to do with your career in music. It was also the idea behind it was also low overhead, you know, for us as a um, mm -hmm. easier for us to pull off a lot easier to find guests when you don't have to bring them out 2000 miles. So the five guests that we got were just, you know, world Incredible. class yeah. and everything mm -hmm. that they do. Um, and so easier for them, you know, and of course we all know that the, the 96 drawbacks of, of learning in the virtual space. And we yeah. know now we know 96,000, we knew we weren't <laughs> 10 to start with, but, but we know all of them now. Um, but, um, but, but again, just thinking about, 
um, about about it holistically in terms of how it would benefit both us and and any any artist who engage with us through it. Um, yeah, it was really cool to be able to do that. So. So you're talking about uh, this concerto that you had written for your group and for high school bands. I, that is something that I think is incredibly interesting to bring up. The most contemporary sort of our peers and sort of older, more established composers. I say this is where all professionals now we're all getting to the established professional stage. They don't tend to write stuff that is geared towards high school students, elementary students, amateur musicians and i think that is something that we're really missing out on as artists because that is a huge part this is how you build your fandom it's not just within being musicians the whole idea is to bring other people into this realm and get them interested in classical music jazz folk contemporary music weird art that you put on the wall like that i think that's hugely important whether you're doing this with professional composers or with high schoolers who are just learning about music for the first time i think that's a huge thing that you're adding um to our world so thank you for doing that and please keep doing that i think that's awesome you know i think rosie one thing you're touching on is we might think of it this way and this is certainly i think the way that we operate as a group is how far really are we going to go with bringing the world and bringing everyone, no matter where they come from and, and what their experiences are, into our beautiful art form? If the art form always has at its core a sense of elitism as mm. far as how you get to great mm. the greatness of it. So if you say, if you want to say that the art always has to be at the highest level then good good you know that's certainly that's certainly where we are as a group you know mm -hmm. um in terms of our performing and and the pieces we want to play and all that stuff oh yeah and as professionals that's obviously what we always strive for but yeah, yeah. not everyone's a professional and that shouldn't cut them out from it yeah yeah where we where where our art form doesn't necessarily do successfully what maybe other art forms other industries other mm -hmm. crafts um hobbies um and, and you know activities all these different things um is yeah is exactly what you're describing so i think it actually goes both ways both composers who can successfully write meaningful beautiful challenging music for various age groups but also ensembles that can take people who aren't trained highly educated composers or creators and find out a way to get their music and their ideas into a format that they, as a professional, high-level contemporary music ensemble or classical music ensemble, can play in a way that represents them still. Mm -hmm. So how can we both write good educational music, but how also can we as a group, Acropolis, play a piece of music by a ninth grader that doesn't know anything about music composition in September, and then in April or May, have a product that we then sit down and we really we we own it we find meaning in it we sound good playing it and people enjoy listening to it that that's something that like i don't think until recently and it's an idea that we we want to put out into the world heavily anybody even thought was like something that could contribute to high level contemporary and classical music but we have pieces by young composers that we publish in our sheet music collection that we've performed that people really love. And we get a lot of meaning out of doing that work. 
And it just is a, like a paradox. We, we, have, mm. we just have this thing that's been in our heads for so long. It persists in the system of, of our training and everything that there is just like a separation between you get to this point where now you're like, you've arrived and you, you don't go back you know, anymore. A music composition is like, does music composition have to be something that requires years and years and years in our field of training? You know, mm-hmm. um, I know a lot of people who pick up a guitar, learn a few chords and can write a beautiful, beautiful song. And that's accepted in like other genres of music. But for some reason, if someone grabs a, a pen and paper and tries to create a music composition, they don't know anything. We, we just, we just don't give them any credit. <laughs> and that isn't necessarily a, a good thing. One of the actually the biggest dilemmas that we see when college music students come to us is essentially how they can honor the tradition that they came from while also progressing and moving forward. And I think that we have been just so fortunate not only to be trailblazing our own genre, but that essentially means that we're not beholden to a certain kind of, of baggage or, mm-hmm. or a tradition that maybe other people in, in other genres of classical music feel that they have, you know, carrying around with them all of the time. And so I think that that is one of the many, many, you know, reasons that we tell people that, you know, creating your own thing or forging your own path or finding your own identity or figuring figuring out why you want to do what you want to do is so important because essentially if you run your own ensemble you run your own business no one is telling you what to do it's you and if you feel like you're doing things to appease other people or fit within a mold or a tradition then you're not actually going to be making the art that means the most to you or is the bravest or the truest And so I think that that's the most important thing is that definitely you have to kind of get unstuck (laughs) out of that mindset and that model and realize, you know, that it's, it's your career. And when you're in school, it feels very different than when you go into the real world and you're, you're performing and, and putting yourself out there like that. And so I think that the sooner you get in touch with what that is and, and why that matters to you, then you're going to just go so much further, so much faster. Thank you for those really insightful and actually very inspiring comments. I'm like now like all fired up with excitement, um, but I'm going to make it boring again. So backtracking. <laughs> Sometimes you have to talk about the nitty gritty stuff. It's we important. do. Um, backtracking to what we talked about, there's been a thread definitely of business entrepreneur, as you had mentioned, and also you'd mentioned overhead for the online one of your website pages is your organizational transparency, where you describe your annual reports, financial statements, tax returns, et cetera. Although obviously you can find a lot of this information for nonprofits on places like GuideStar. I don't see many organizations being literally so upfront and transparent about it, that you're just acknowledging and, and spreading the, the knowledge and the where, so to speak, of what you do and how much you make and where it all comes from, et cetera. Why do you do this? Oh, that's the really glamorous stuff, you know? I mean, like, that's, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is the stuff you do in a ball gown and all the glitz and glass. Yeah. Well, I think the the short answer is that I believe any organization, especially nonprofit, I think equally importantly for profits, though, for some strange reason, (laughs) nonprofits who make, don't make a lot of money, have to put all the money back in the organization have fewer staff, have to be mission-based, also have to do more administrative work. 
than for profits, right? So, so this, Funny the whole enough. idea, the whole idea that yeah, that a nonprofit would would have to be more transparent. Um, I believe we all should, all organizations and companies should be equally transparent and open. So the short answer is actually, I think it's a good business move. Like I think everybody should be doing it. It shows responsibility, shows openness, honesty. And if you're going to give us money and we have a, a couple hundred very earnest, ardent supporters who donate to us each year, then you deserve to know, you know everything about where your money is going, where we've grown, how things have changed. So the transparency page also has different things like the um, strategic kind of guide that we use. Mm -hmm. um, it does have tax returns. Um, those aren't really fun. The pie charts are, are much easier. Uh, there's also a little bit of, I think, pride in what we've built. I think we need to make sure that we are promoting the fact that we are a nonprofit organization because it can be hard to let people know that we're an ensemble and we're a touring group, which has a lot of um, people would assume you are a certain way. They would assume you have a certain value system and we want to make sure we let them know this is who we are. This is how we function. And the best way to do that is to just put it all out there. The move to becoming a nonprofit organization was not, um, you know, a, a shot in the dark, willy nilly choice for us. We existed as a, an LLC for probably six years before we decided to become a nonprofit. So it was not a whim decision. And I know that especially for, you know, groups and ensembles starting out, they might just think that, hey, I have to become a nonprofit and that's just what I'm going to be. And I'm going to do, do what I can to, to make it happen. But for us, the, the idea of, of moving forward in that was as much a strategic business decision as it was an artistic decision. And I think like Matt mentioned pride, I mean, we, we want to not only be the best artists and ensemble we can be, but we wanna be the best business that we can be as well. And we take a lot of joy actually in, in running our own little small business and organization and growing it and thinking about it just as somebody who owns a bakery would think about it. And that brings us just so much fulfillment to be able to create that uh, completely separate from the art, to be honest. It's mm -hmm. something that, you know, when you have an ownership over that, you want to take care of it and grow it as much as possible. And so, yeah, I, I would just echo Matt that we would encourage any organization to, to move in that direction as well. It's, it's surprisingly liberating. It puts you on full display for all, um, all of your supporters, all of your peers, and everybody sees your intentions, which I think is just hugely important. On a more personal note, you two are our second married couple on the podcast. What's it like working together as both performance and administrators for this ensemble? As of the last, you know, nine months or so, it's been a really important time for Carrie and I to we, we've, we've been able to ask ourselves a lot of questions and make actually a lot of progress in terms of how we want to interact with each other and how we as a unit want to interact with our sort of lifelong um, artistic and business enterprise, so to speak. And that we've spent a lot of time thinking about it in that I hope that the time, that unfortunate time that we've been living in has given a lot of people an opportunity to do that. 
And I've discovered some things, and I think we both have, that maybe we didn't know about how we want our relationship to work in terms of how it interacts with the quintet. And I think one of the big things for us, what our real goals are as a unit, um, because, and I mean that like outside of and in addition to Acropolis. So for us, we met in the group, we sort of courted, you know, in the group and it has, <laughs> been our, we've <laughs> had, fancy. we've had other jobs, um, before we started working for the group full time, but it's, it's been this thread and it's been this thing that's really helped us grow and just brought us close and has been our biggest the biggest thing that we have in common is our pursuit of this goal. Um, and we finally started to, I think, make some steps toward like, okay, so we're, um, you know, in our thirties now, and we had some breathing time to think like, well, what about like later on in life? How do we actually want to interact? How do we want to live, you know, with each other? Um, and we had some wonderful space to do that. So to answer the question a little more directly, I mean, it's, yeah, working with Carrie and I think I would hope in general working with someone who you live with, um, who you're partnered with in any like really significant way, I would hope and assume that it's joyful and helpful. Mm -hmm. For us, it's nothing but, but incredibly useful and great. How romantic. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, Honey, you're useful. Super but useful. I, but I, I mean, I, I, I uh, yeah, I mean, on one end of the spectrum, right? The other end being constant misery, right? I mean, <laughs> which it, it just, it just isn't. Like, um, and I mean, and if it were, we, we would have very long time ago, we would have changed, you know, some Something. substantial yeah. things about Acropolis mm -hmm. and about our relationship. Yeah. Um, but we knew that we didn't have to do that, and so that we didn't have to do that is great, and is really, really really awesome so yeah yeah i think that the biggest the biggest benefit obviously is that you know when when the two of us are are in a room together and we we have ideas and basically determination and persistence you know like sky high and if stuff needs to get done we're just like this little wind up wheel that just keeps going and going and going and uh we're we can be an incredibly productive uh, team when when you put the the two of us together and I think honestly the biggest thing that like Matt said that we've had to really spend time working on is is how do we unplug how do we turn that off how do we find other mm -hmm. fulfillment and enjoyment outside of this work that does fuel us and mean so much to us and uh, surprisingly over the last nine months we've had some great reflective time to think about that and and really explore that I mean, all all chamber music is relationships, so it's it's really mm -hmm. not surprising that um, in qu quite a few circumstances, I'm actually surprised that there haven't been more in our interviews so far. It it makes sense, uh, of course. Romance comes out of this, so that I think that's awesome. So to wrap this up, we have one final question: If you were to do it over again, what would you change? What a great question! I have so many, and I just am having trouble <laughs> narrowing it down. <laughs> Um, would you, you like, would you like me to go first? Yeah, sure. Okay. You can just keep thinking if you like. Um, I would have started from the very beginning of this journey with self reflection on a regular basis. I do it now 
on a semi-regular basis and not reflection like I'm going to write what happened today in a journal. Self-reflection is in noticing. So noticing what you are doing, noticing what is making that happen, how you're treating people, what is inspiring you, what is fueling your decisions. There are a million ways to do these kinds of reflections, but ultimately that's where growth comes from. And so in going back to like 12 years ago at the beginning of the of this journey with Acropolis, I see how I would have grown a lot quicker and I think the group would have if I and, and everybody, but I think I especially would have taken that um, seriously sooner. And it's a really wonderful kind of part of my of my practice now. So, yeah. That's a good one. So I would have, um, I think just two, uh, one really simple thing and then one kind of more complicated thing. But if I had known that in 12 years, I was going to be a professional clarinetist and business owner, um, that I would have given myself permission to believe that like 12 years ago, um, that if I knew like deep down that that was what I was going to be and what I was going to do, I would have said that, you know, I would have been comfortable being like, yes, I'm a clarinetist. I am doing this for a living. It is my career rather than, you know, the, the various day jobs and everything that we held, you know, over the last decade to get to this point. Um, I would have owned that a lot more. And I think that that would have just incredibly increased, you know, the self-confidence and just worth in every kind of career aspect in pursuing this life. And I think that that's, I guess that's not a small thing, but (laughs) that's the first thing. And the second thing is that I would have not gone in so many different directions at the early stages, because I think all of that energy use pulls you in just so many different paths that you're not really realizing that you're basically subtracting (laughs) from the, from the one track that you're trying to go down. And I think that what I've seen is that it's, you know, success doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long period of time and you can't expect that to be something that you just attain, you know, right after you get your diploma or something like that. And so I think it's really important. I would have definitely just said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be funneling all of my energy in all of these different avenues because I understand that this one path will work. It will just take me some time to get down the path and I can probably be a happier, healthier person, you know, (laughs) if I wasn't running around doing a million different things. With that, we have come to the end of the podcast. So once again, dear listeners, we have been chatting to the wonderful, the lovely, the incredible Matt and Carrie Landry. They are two members from the Acropolis Quintet. Uh, Now, all of your guys' socials and websites and everything will be down in the show notes. Dear listeners, thank you so much for joining us as always, and we will see you very soon.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sound Weavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Michael Gilbertson and Nilafar Norbachs and performed by the Acropolis Requintet. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks. <laughs>